You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Neil Shubin is a provost of the Field Museum and professor of anatomy at the University of Chicago. His first book is Your Inner Fish. Thank you for joining me, Neil. Thanks for having me on. Neil, this is a really fascinating book about the similarities between humans and some very unusual animals that you've discovered in rocks. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the central message of the book is that we're deeply connected to the rest of life on the planet, whether it's apes, jellyfish, worms, fish, uh, microbes, sponges, you name it. Um, We're made up of bits and pieces of of, of the rest of life on the planet. That is, we carry uh, a 3.5 billion year history inside of us. My own entree to this whole question came uh, through my day job, which is a paleontologist. I've worked in the Canadian Arctic up at a latitude of about 80 north. This is, you know, polar bear country. (laughs) Um, But we went there with a purpose, and that purpose was to find fossils uh, that tell us something about the shift from life in water to life on land, from fish to amphibian. And what you found was that the hand that I'm holding up to you now bears a remarkable similarity to the fin of one of the first creatures to emerge forth from land. Yeah, it was really remarkable. So what we found uh, was a creature uh, that if I was to hold it up to you, you'd say, hmm, looks like a fish. Uh, has a scales in its back and, and fin webbing. Then if you knew something about early land-living animals, you'd scratch your head and you'd say, wait a minute, that's got the head of a land-living animal. It's a flat head with eyes on top. And then if you looked inside the fin webbing, what you'd see are bones that correspond to our upper arm, forearm, even parts of our wrist and palm. I mean, this is a fish... Uh, but it's also a land-living animal. It's a, it's a hybrid of both. It's an intermediate fossil. It's a, it's a true transitional form. One of the things that I found really interesting was the means by which you locate fossils. It had never really thought about that you actually have to figure out where to look for fossils. Yeah, I mean, so when we, when we begin a new expedition, we, we really look for three things. We look for places in the world that have rocks that have the right age, you know, to answer the question we're interested in. Uh, places in the world that have rocks of the right type to preserve fossils, you know, not volcanic rocks, that kind of thing. Um, and those, the third thing is those rocks have to be sort of exposed at the surface. They can't be buried underground or buried under cities or what have you. You know, so with those three ideas, uh, that's really all it takes. That and a lot of geological maps and a lot of persistence, uh, that is what led us to the Arctic. One of the things is that you have this idea that what makes creatures the same and that's you have these creatures you call the everythings. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, basically, you know, there's there are those features. If you look at the world, the biological world is, has an organization to it. There are certain features that every living thing shares. They have RNA or DNA. Um, then there are certain there. Then there there are more special features. So you can say there are those everythings, those things that have DNA or RNA, uh, that have many cells. And then you could say there are those everythings that have many cells and backbones, those that have many cells, backbones, uh, and two eyes, and so forth. And you can, def- you can see the world as a set of Russian dolls, as groups within groups within groups. It's really remarkable when you see how organized the natural world is. And what kind of kicked this off was in 2000, you found the skeleton of something called the Tiktaalik. 
Yeah. Um, so we found that actually in 2004, and we started looking for it, though, around 1999-2000. Okay. So it took us six years <laughs> you know, <laughs> to find this thing. Um, and what really kicked it off in my head was seeing, when I saw TikTok, uh, my, my colleagues and I, uh, Ted Deschler in Philadelphia, Farish Jenkins at Harvard, and myself, it's really a team that's been working on this. When we saw it, we realized what we had. We realized we had something very special, which is a creature that's showing us, that captures one of the great transitions in the history of life, this event, you know, fish evolving to walk on land 375 million years ago. But there's a more special part of this story. And the special part of that story, this story is that that's not just some crazy, wacko, esoteric event of the distant past. That's a piece of our own human past. That's a piece of our own human past, you know, when our common ancestors were fish. So when we look at a creature like Tiktaalik, we see um, the origin of a neck. Well, that's an origin of something that, that became our own neck. When we look at Tiktaalik, we see, you know, the origin of a wrist. That's something that, be, you know, that ultimately became our own wrist and so forth. One of the, the things that, that I thought was really interesting was uh, the discovery of Richard Owen, the, the basic structure of, of the arm. I, I, it, it's something that seems so simple once you twig to it, mm -hmm, but I never twig to it. And, you know, a, a, a number of uh, comparative anatomists before Darwin were twigging to the essential similarities among many forms, life, life forms on Earth. And, you know, where it becomes most apparent and so visual, in fact, so textbook, if you will, is in limbs, appendages. You know, you have one bone, upper arm bone, then you have two bones in the forearm, then you have a series of small little bones in the wrist, and then you have fingers, right? Well, that same appendage design, if you will, is seen in everything from bats to birds to whales to frogs to salamanders to human beings. And so what we were doing in the fossil record is looking to see how that, uh, that pattern was assembled in fish, and that's what we were seeing in Tiktaalik. One of the things I also found really interesting was that these aren't all just new fossils. We may have right now fossils sitting in a drawer somewhere that will tell us now things we had never suspected when we pulled the things out of the ground. There's a history of paleontology in your book that I found really interesting. Absolutely. And paleontology is, you know, is, 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 a, is a discipline about discovery. And there's lots of ways to discover new things. My own way is to go out in the field and find new fossils. But the fact of the matter is, as we learn as we discover new fossils and learn about the history of life, it gives us the tools to reassess what's sitting in the cabinets today. And so it's this continual interchange between discovery in the field and discovery, or reinterpretation, actually, uh, of, of what we have. And this book, you, you weds another very different form of science, which is DNA science. Yeah, exactly. So if you were to walk into my laboratory at the University of Chicago, what you'd see is a molecular biology lab. We do a lot of DNA research. Then embedded in the back, back is the fossil lab with all our little precious tiktaalics. Um, the real, the essential question we're after when we, when we do the DNA research is asking the question, what is the biological recipe written in DNA, written in our genome, uh, that builds bodies? Okay? And if once we get to the, down to that, it's a really difficult question, obviously, but once we get down to that, then we can get to the, to the issues of, well, how does the recipe that builds a human differ from the recipe that builds a fish, a worm, uh, an, an ape, and so forth? You know, we get to the mechanisms that make us different. And more fascinatingly, the mechanisms that make us the same as a headless worm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the remarkable discoveries in the past, say, f you know, 15 years or so, is that the biological recipe to build different kinds of or creatures from you know, a human to a lowly worm are, are very similar. So the, the, the recipe that builds a worm is a primitive version of that which builds our own bodies. Um, it's a remarkable discovery because 
it's 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 important in so many ways. I mean, and not the least is that you know when we're now that we're we have all these different lines of evidence that we used to decipher the history of life. All these different lines of evidence are sort of pointing to the same thing, whether it's DNA or fossils or anatomy of living creatures and so forth. Uh, it's a it's a remarkable story. In, in a way, it's like putting together uh, the pieces of evidence for a crime, the, the motive and, and on one hand, and then the DNA, the hard evidence on the other. You're, you're integrating a lot of different pieces of uh, science, different types of science and, to create a, a new vision of who we are and where we came from. Absolutely. And in fact, your, your use of the forensic analogy is brilliant because the DNA tools that we use are versions of the same ones we use to indict criminals of crimes. <laughs> you know? So we have all kinds of faith in our use of DNA uh, technology to uh, convict criminals and, and find bad guys and so forth. Um, and it's that same t- technologies oftentimes that we use to decipher the tree of life, you know, the history of, of species. Well, I found it interesting, too, that you, you referred to that one of the more entertaining parts of these CSI shows is the, the portions where they call, where they do what my wife and I call wound diving. <laughs> and they just like do a header into a wound. And that's exactly what you do mm-hmm. in a virtual sense when you're pulling these uh, animals apart and finding out how they and we share the same gene. Right, because what we do, you know, when you do those sort of, you know, the wound dives in, uh, in CSI, um, you're, you're, you're marching through levels of organization. So you begin at the body, you go to the tissues, the cells, the molecules, you know, you're diving in. Well, that's the same thing when we do when we look at, when we, when we look at molecules and, 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 and biology. You know, we, we look at organ, organisms, the whole creature, the anatomy. Then we look at the cells that make that anatomy. Then we look at the DNA recipe that builds it and so forth. I never really thought much about teeth because, you know, we, aside from brushing them. But uh, what we find out, what I find out is the only first time I really had a lot of thoughts about teeth was when I dished out uh, five grand per kid to get to create what I now find is a very big clue in nature, precise occlusion. That's right. Well, that's actually, you know, when you think about what makes us, mam- this is a feature we share with other mammals. You know, when we close our upper and lower jaws, when we bite, right, when we occlude our lower jaw to our upper jaw, um, our teeth occlude in the same place every time, which is a good thing, right, because so, we don't pop cusps or anything like that. It turns out that pattern of precise occlusion is something shared among all mammals, and that trait is about 200 million years old. And uh, one of the first projects I worked on in paleontology was actually looking at how that pattern of precise occlusion came about. And you found the clues in Nova Scotia. Yeah, we're along the beaches in Nova Scotia. So what, what, what brought us up there was another prediction. That is that, you know, we had rocks of the right age and type and so forth. These rocks were about 200 million years old. And they were exposed along these absolutely gorgeous sandstone cliffs along the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia. Now, what's special about the Bay of Fundy, it has some of the world's highest tides. So the tides would come in and out, you know, um, and remarkably. And, it was, and as they, the, the tides went out, what they would expose was giant cliffs and mudflats of 200 million year old rocks that were beautiful, orange and red and green. But even better as a paleontologist is they contain lots of fossil bones. Um, and, uh, you know, through a series of uh, happenstance and you know, coincidences, we ended up making a discovery there. But what it was was a reptile that had a version of precise occlusion. And not just any reptile, it was a reptile that also had a version of the special ear that mammals have as well. So. The other thing I found thought was really interesting was that the segment where you talk about how you 
had you got all these rocks and you but you hadn't found many fossils in that lots of the discoveries of the fossils don't happen on in the field do they no mo- you know most of the important discoveries actually happen in the laboratory uh, through the fossil preparators these are highly trained and very skillful technicians uh, who sit with the rocks underneath the microscope typically working with a, a needle removing rocks grain by grain so in the tectolic uh, work or in the work from the fossils we collected from Nova Scotia, you, know, you might have a preparator working in the laboratory for months and months and months turning this uh, rock you know, with some bones in it that we discovered in the field uh, into, a, into, a, into a, an important museum specimen, a quality specimen. Yeah. Now, as you're going through the, these discovering, you know, the different similarities between us and, and all these other creatures. One of the things that a lot of us think about is these old diagrams where you'll see the embryo developing, and then you'll see kind of a parallel between the way an embryo develops and the way evolution is pictured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people learn in school ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That view is actually um, not entirely correct. And what we're seeing nowadays is similarities in the biological recipe that builds creatures. So what that means is what ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny uh, was is an old idea that says as an organism, as a creature develops from egg to adult, it marches, it would march through its evolutionary history. Well, what we really see is something a lot more complicated and, and actually more elegant, and that is organisms, creatures, share similar genetic and cellular um, recipes to build their bodies. What that means is many of the early stages, the earliest parts of development, are in many ways similar among different creatures, whether they're turtles or humans or, or, or worms, um, and that they later diverge, that they later gain their distinctive features, whether they're, they're fish features, their mammal features, and their human features during later developmental stages. Um, that kind of um, uh, approach is really important because it really can allows us to make the right comparisons, which um, can tell us the mechanisms that make organisms make creatures different from one another. And one thing that I just really kind of, I blew me away was that that the, this idea of the spine, the the similarity between the spine and the skull. Mm. That was really interesting. Yes, and, and I think what you have essentially is, you know, the way the spinal cord forms is as a tube in development. And really, the, what the brain becomes is the front end of that tube, right? Um, now, our skull is a bony box that covers that brain, right? But also, there are a series of other little bones that, you know, form our jaws, uh, our voice box, form parts of our ears. The remarkable thing here is that, that those bones correspond to gill bones in fish, Looking at development and how things form from embryo to adult, looking at the DNA recipe that builds heads, looking at at certain fossils, what becomes clear is the muscles, bones, and nerves that I'm using to talk to you with now, and many of the muscles and bones and nerves you're using to hear me now actually correspond to to gill structures in fish and sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad my head's above water. As I read this book... One thing that struck me was that we, we like to think that science is this kind of uh, m- proceeds with a clock, like clockwork. We It's one o'clock, and we understand a little bit of evolution. It's two o'clock, we understand more. 
and that it's kind of divorced from popular culture and all the hurly burly. But that's not the case. I mean, you had the the Sonic the Hedgehog gene. Right. Well, I mean, it's true. And but the other thing about science that's really important to keep in mind is it's it's a interesting combination of planning and chance. You know, we make all kinds of plans. We make all kinds of um, uh, of predictions and so forth. But oftentimes discovery comes by with a mix of, of that planning and a degree of luck or a degree of happenstance or, or, um, or serendipity. Uh, and, such, and so much of that was the case with our own paleontological work, of course. Uh, but that's true in many other fields and disciplines and scientific careers. Now, you're, as you're gathering all this, all this really interesting information about the way the similarities between humans and and uh, all the rest of the creatures, every way it carries through. You're a scientist. You're working. In, you're working in a, a, a field museum. You know, you're a provost. Mm. Why write a book? Uh, well, the book actually was was um, a product of a lot of coincidences in my life. Um, number one is there were a couple things that were going on. Number one is my father um, kept on asking me for actually the last 25 years, uh, Neil, so tell me what you do. And I've tried to explain it to him <laughs> a lot. Uh, so there's that backdrop of trying to explain myself to my own family. Um, but then there was another thing. I was, I was um, recruited as the chairman of an anatomy department in a medical school. And for a variety of reasons, I ended up teaching the human anatomy course to first-year medical students as a paleontologist. And so the students would come to me and say, Dr. Shubin, you know, it's a very important experience for first-year medical students, just anatomy course. Um, they say, Dr. Shubin, what kind of doctor are you? And they think, you know, are you a gastroenterologist, a thoracic surgeon? I said, well, you know, I'm a fish paleontologist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after they got over their shock, um, it became pretty clear that being a paleontologist is, is a very powerful thing in teaching anatomy. Because oftentimes the best roadmaps to our own bodies lie in other creatures. Then, as, as I was teaching this human anatomy course, we discovered this fossil tiktaalik, this, this, quote, missing link between life in water and life on land. And, uh, you know, those things really came together to me that I, and, and I thought I could say, tell the human story in, an, in a different way. Tell the human story as our deep history, as our history as, as reptiles, as our history as, as, you know, that we share with fish, the history we share with worms, the history we share with other creatures. And so that became that became uh, the book, and it, and it was really a labor of love. One thing that in your conclusion that I thought just thought was really interesting. Uh, there's an uh, essay by Stanislaw Lem, and he has this in a, a book of uh, perfect reviews of non-existent books. And this essay is a review of a book called Civilization as a Mistake. And the, the idea behind this book that he's reviewing is that civilization is not this golden tower of perfected moments. It's a, it's a series of heinous mistakes and attempts to cover up and deal with those mistakes. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the story of the human body, isn't it? Yeah, the human body has lots of detours. I mean, if you look at uh, our, the nerves, arteries, and vessels in our bodies, Ah, uh, you know, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, you know. I mean, certain vessels might go one direction, only take a, a loop-the-loop and go in the opposite direction. Um, and, you know, it seems awfully jury-rigged in many ways. You know, when you open up um, the human head, as we do in the anatomy course, you see the nerves take bizarre loops and turns around each other and crisscross in odd ways. Why? Right. And the only reason why is because of history. When you know our history as fish and you know our history as reptiles, that enables you to understand why our bodies takes the detours it does. As a scientist, you know a lot more than most of us. This book could probably have been about 1,500 pages. Um, 
How did you get it down to under 200 pages? Well, that was the real challenge. I mean, there are a couple things that helped me. Number one is I teach a lot. I've taught medical students. I've taught freshmen in college. And so I kind of know from, for each of these fields, what are the, what's the essential information that, that you really need to know to, get, to, come to, the, to come to grips with it? But then the other piece of this was really the storytelling. There are stories here. So there are three goals in writing this book. Goal number one was just really to give the facts of the, of the science. And that I, I kind of knew how to, to scale it down from my teaching. Number two is I wanted to give the story of discovery. These aren't things we discover in books. These are things we discover in the field and the laboratory. These facts that I, we talk about in the book are hard-earned. And then the third thing I wanted to do was to convey the joy of doing the science. That is, you know, I've devoted my life to this you know, for the last 25 years, and my colleagues have devoted many more years in some cases. Uh, and there's a reason, because it's fun. We enjoy learning about it. It's powerful. It's scientific, scientific knowledge is, uh, is a remarkable thing to, to, to see and to learn and to be one of the people privileged to discover. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, convey that in the book. And, um, you know, I, the book was originally a lot longer in the first draft, and it got shorter and shorter and shorter as I, as I rewrote it and edited it and so forth. One thing that I, I had never thought of till actually I read this book was that nonfiction requires a, a sense of plotting as, as much as fiction does. You, you want to keep us, as you say, there are stories. You want to keep us hooked. And, and could you talk about like um, laying out the facts and reveal, you know, revealing the really interesting things and, and the sense of pacing that goes into a work of nonfiction like this? Because this book is a kind of a page turner. And, and so it was written as, as that. And so the idea was really to, okay, I, when I looked at the head, I said, what's, what do you really need to know about the head to know its entire, to know its history? What are the facts? The little, I wanted the little windows that give you the larger picture, you know? And so, so basically the story of the head chapter is about two nerves, the trigeminal and facial. Now, I didn't go through all the cranial nerves. I didn't go through all the structures. But it turns out those two nerves tell the story of the entire head. Once you know those, everything else uh, becomes very clear. And um, so then I wanted to tell the story of how we discovered what we know about those, those nerves and, and then what it means for our, for our lives and so forth. And so, um, and then it became a, qu a question of, well, how do you tell the story in a way that's fun to read? And, um, you know, I do like page turners. I love uh, noir thrillers and things like that. And there's a pace to those. And then what the funny thing was is I wrote the book. I found it acquired that pace. I didn't give it that pace. You know, it, it was, it's sort of like when I read the first draft, I found essences of a pace in there. And so that when I edited it, I, I, I edited it to sort of bring those things out, to, to, to bring the pace into clear focus. The thing, though, is, is science writing doesn't always lend itself to that. So you'll know that there are pieces where I really do have to convey fact. And, and that was where I worked with my artists in my, in my group to sort of balance between storytelling in the text, but also using figures in a way to tell important factual stories so that the readers necessarily have to bog down with long paragraphs of description. They can just look at a figure and, you know, get back to the text and the story, you know. Um, it's a graphic novel. <laughs> in a way, yeah. <laughs> uh, and like any other book, work of fiction, even though this is nonfiction, there are characters in this book, aren't there? Oh, yeah. And there are the characters in my life. I mean, so most the most central ones are the characters in my own discoveries. But then... It, that, that, that group widens to the, to the intellectual characters who've made the discoveries in anatomy that got us to where we are today. Some of these people were you know, alive in the 1830s and 1860s and so forth. Um, and, but these were important people to me, too, whose original works really changed my own thinking. Uh, Von Baer, Carl Von Baer, Richard Owen, Charles Darwin, um, 
uh, Hilda Mangold and others who did great experiments and wonderful uh, and wonderful synthetic works, which really, you know, uh, if I, if I had a dinner party, these are people I would like to you know share the table with me. Well, I I love the Hilda Mangold and, and uh, Hans Spiemann. His story is really incredible. Baby hair. Yeah, <laughs> I know. He took the hair from his own infants and would make uh, tools out of the hair since it's, you know, infant hair is extremely fine. So he was able to manipulate individual cells with these little tools he was making. When Spemann was working, this is around the turn of the century, when, when embryologists were interested in uh, understanding how eggs form bodies, right? How a single-celled egg, egg forms a two-trillion-cell adult. Well, to get at that, what people like Spemann did was manipulate the cells in the embryo, move them around or take them out. So he devised all kinds of wonderful techniques and tools, and that, the baby hair tool was one of, one of the more amazing ones. Another character in your book, the most important character in your book, I'm speaking to him. Oh, what? Well, me? <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense... Um, this book is about discovery, but the storytelling is really about my own discovery of the field and oftentimes. So what it came down to is how me as me as a working scientist, but also uh, as, a, as, a, as a young student, how I understood these things. And so a lot of the storytelling is really through uh, the, w- the way I came to, to, the, to the place I'm at today, um, whether it's, you know, the place I'm at gained through discovery in the Arctic, but also... Uh, you know, intellectual adventure, adventures reading about the giants in the field, you know. Now, as a writer, when you're writing this first-person prose, you think of it as like a first-person novel. It's a little mm-hmm. bit of a detective story. Um, how did you um, edit yourself, and, and how did you think... One of the things I think that's interesting is that the vision of a scientist we tend to think of is somebody who knows it all. And one of the things that's great about this book is that we realize that scientists don't know it all. No, <laughs> you don't either. I mean, you right. discover if stuff. All, if I knew it all, I'd be out of business. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be a scientist anymore. I mean, science is about discovery and, and going into the unknown. And, and you know, it's really about understanding the things we don't know. Um, and it's a wonderful platform to do that. Um, the, the challenge here in terms of in sort of editing it down is really sort of seeing what the arc of the chapter was and what the essential scientific information was in each chapter. And so then what I would do is once I had the chapter written, uh, I would actually try to pull paragraphs out. And I would get to the point, well, well I would try to tighten it to the extent where, you know, if I pulled a couple paragraphs out, would the, would the chapter make sense anymore? And you'll notice in some of the place, in some of, for some of the chapters, there really, there are, I, I can't do without pretty much every paragraph in that book because I tightened it so so thoroughly. So it took about, when I wrote it, it was fairly a fat, it was a much fatter book. And then as I edited it, it got smaller and smaller and smaller. And that sort of tightening took about six months. Did you have any other people reading this book? I mean, when you were writing mm-hmm. this book, did you have a, a, a an agent already or did you just yeah. set out and go? No, but I sold the book bef- be- actually before I wrote it. And so um, I sold it as a proposal, as a treatment. And because uh, I knew what I wanted to do, I knew the superstructure of the book. What I didn't know was um, just in ge- to, to how in detail I'd get in each in each um, in each story. Um, and yeah, I had people read it, I, and not the agent or the editor. I would usually give it to a colleague or two, to a friend or two. The best readers are actually my non-science friends and relatives. You know, um, I knew the science well. It's not like I needed a scientific colleague to tell me that. Oh, you know, you you, you don't understand. You know limb evolution and tiktaalik that kind of I, I got that piece uh there were pieces i didn't understand and i did give it to colleagues to sort of help me and buff it up but for most of it was, it was something i was in familiar ground 
the piece that was not familiar to me was, was um, communicating to a non-scientist, because this was really kind of my first attempt at that. And so I, um, I would give it to non-science colleagues and friends and see, well, my first question is, did you like it? You know, <laughs> did you understand it? You know, um, and, you know, if it didn't meet those two criteria, I, I would, uh, you know, I'd get back to the drawing board. One thing I, I, I really loved was the full bozo family tree. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used that example, really. Um, so basically, there's a family tree where, where, where in the book. I'm trying to show how the, the most important concept to understand the history of life is parenthood. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and the structure of our own families is a beautiful example of uh, the structure of the, the tree of life between species, right? And so I'm trying to show how the conceptual apparatus is the same. So the bozo family tree is really um, showing how a, a family of bozo develops bozoness over time through the different features of curly hair, big floppy feet, and squeaky noses, and so forth. And, uh, and then to show how that's the bozo family tree uh, that from a hypothetical family, which I, the bozo family, um, is... Uh, is seen in the tree of life among all species that goes back 3.5 billion years, the same framework. And the reason why I chose the bozo example is because, you know, floppy feet and squeaky noses and orange curly hair are the kinds of features you'd remember, you know what I mean? You're not going to forget them. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to give you a, an image that would stay with you through the rest of the chapter. And so bozos certainly fit that bill. Uh, am I wrong to read this book as a bit of an argument against intelligent design? Oh, it's. I mean, the funny thing is, it's all. It's an argument against intelligent design, in the, because it, it, it celebrates the power of science. Okay, if celebrating the power of science and relishing in the joy of scientific explanation and how uh, how predictive it is, how powerful it is, and how much we're learning in recent years, if that's an attack on an intelligent design, so be it. Yeah, but I never mention it in the book because I don't have to. I'm just really talking about science. There's many non-scientific things and issues and approaches that I don't talk about in the book, and certainly creationism and intelligent design are, are, are not part of it. I've been speaking with Neil Shubin. His new book is Your Inner Fish. Get, I will get in touch with my inner fish soon. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.